The U.S. and Israel hold top-level talks at the White House as Israel signals an expansion of its ground offensive into Gaza. It's Wednesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, what the meetings between Israel's strategic affairs minister and the U.S. Secretary of State mean for U.S.-Israeli relations. Also this hour, what it is like for Syrian migrants trying to reach Europe by sea. There was shooting on us, around us, around the boat, hitting the boat for two times. Plus, amid a major expansion of legalized gambling nationwide, why it is so much easier to gamble than find treatment for gambling addiction. It's 401 First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Israeli and Palestinian leaders are considering an Egyptian proposal to end the war in Gaza. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv, the proposal also seeks a path toward new Palestinian leadership. NPR obtained a copy of the Egyptian proposal from a Palestinian official. It calls for a temporary ceasefire, more aid to Gaza, freeing Israeli hostages in Gaza and Palestinian detainees in Israel, and a path to ending the war. Israeli leaders discussed the proposal this week, but they say the war will last many more months. Palestinian officials are expected to visit Egypt to discuss who will rule Gaza and the West Bank after the war. President Biden's national security adviser Jake Sullivan met with senior Israeli official Ron Dermer. A White House official says they discussed moving to a new phase of the war, focusing on high-value Hamas targets, and what happens in Gaza after the war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A group of senior Biden administration officials is in Mexico to discuss immigration enforcement amid an unprecedented surge. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports the issue of migration has been a political liability for President Biden. Recently, President Biden requested wartime aid for Ukraine and Israel. In response, House Republicans demanded that there be a drastic change in immigration policy to mm -hmm. make applying for and receiving asylum at the border far more difficult, as well as expanded deportations. The Mexican president says he expects migration to be a top issue in the U.S. presidential election next year. The Michigan Supreme Court has handed former President Donald Trump a legal win in a key state, declining to review a case seeking to remove Trump from Michigan's primary ballot, despite his attempts to overturn the last election. The high court in Colorado, however, has ruled to remove him from their ballot because he engaged in an insurrection. An appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court is expected. The New York Times is suing ChatGPT's maker OpenAI and major shareholder Microsoft, saying millions of its articles are being used without copyright permission. NPR's Derek Kerr has this report. The New York Times says OpenAI and Microsoft have been, quote, unlawfully copying the newspaper's uniquely valuable works. It says ChatGPT uses the copyrighted material to train its artificial intelligence technology. The paper says the company should be held responsible for billions of dollars in damages. OpenAI and Microsoft did not immediately respond to requests for comment. This is the first major media network to sue OpenAI over copyright infringement. But Several novelists, including John Grisham and Jonathan Franzen, have also filed copyright suits against the AI company. Dara Kerr, NPR News. 
And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. A Winthrop police lieutenant is facing charges of child rape. 56-year-old James Feely was arrested last night. He pleaded not guilty at his arraignment today and was ordered held on $200,000 bail. Prosecutors say the crimes took place over the past year on a victim under the age of 14. Feely's due back in court next month. He's been placed on leave from the Winthrop Police Department. Tens of thousands of Massachusetts residents will get new subsidies to help pay for health insurance in the new year. That after lawmakers approved an expansion of the State Connector Care Program in the state budget. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports. Advocates have been pushing to expand benefits for years, and Governor Maura Healey signed off. There has never been more help available to more people than there is today. Audrey Morse-Gasteyer runs the Health Connector, the state's marketplace for insurance. So that healthcare isn't one of those things they have to make sacrifices on. They can afford to go to the doctor. They can afford to get care. They can afford to fill a prescription is really what we're all about. As of January 1st, people who make up to $73,000 a year can get health plans with low or no premiums, and they won't have to pay deductibles. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic led several Boston theaters to close their doors in 2023, but WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports on one holiday tradition that has managed to now keep its lights on for 53 years. The Revels in Cambridge has delighted families with music and spectacle for generations. The 2023 iteration feels the closest to pre-pandemic levels of attendance, says artistic director Patrick Swanson. We've survived those stormy seas of the last three years, hanging on by our fingernails, and I think we're headed into the right direction. Swanson notes an increased interest in matinees over evening shows. He says those trends will help inform programming decisions for next year's production. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The state transportation department's taking steps to ensure smooth travel this holiday weekend. Construction on state highways will be paused from Friday morning through Tuesday morning. Also, the Sumner Tunnel connecting East Boston to downtown will remain open all weekend. Sports Bruins are at Buffalo tonight. Forecast says rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is all things. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The United Nations says more than 2,500 people died in the Mediterranean Sea this year while trying to reach Europe. Those that survive the journey on smugglers' boats mostly arrive on Italy's shores, where a fierce political debate over migration makes their future far from easy or certain. NPR's Ruth Sherlock joined a rescue ship run by the charity Doctors Without Borders. It's 2 a.m. and the team on the rescue ship, the MV Geobarrance, has just spotted a small boat in distress. The migrants on board have used the light of their phones to attract attention. Rescuers from Doctors Without Borders or MSF move in to help. Five, eight, 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 
It's pitch dark. We're in the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles off the coast of Libya, and the small fishing boat is so packed with people that if anyone panics or moves too quickly, it could capsize. Somebody warns there's a baby amid the crush. MSF do manage to get everybody safely on board the Geobarrens. And then, hours later, there's a second boat. By morning, the team has saved 258 people, among them are families, and even children making the journey to Europe alone. Now I'm 16. When I was in Libya, I was 15. As this boy is still young, we'll protect his identity. He's a whip-smart kid who's taught himself near-perfect English by watching American movies. He grew up in the civil war in Syria, and as the oldest of three siblings, he says, he always felt responsible for his family. Their life was not, uh, not safe, so that's why I, I left Syria, to help my family and to bring them to Europe. At 13, he started saving money. Then last year, at 15, he went to Damascus airport and boarded a plane alone to Libya, another country at war. There, he paid a smuggler to cross the Mediterranean. But the boat was caught by the Libyan Coast Guard, which is supported by the European Union to stop this migration. The Coast Guard are notoriously violent. There was shooting on us, around us, around the boat, hitting the boat for two times. They were trying to follow us on the sea. He and the others on board were taken back to Libya, to a detention center. The police there was hitting me, give me your dollars. I don't have a dollar, sir. Hitting me, give me your dollars. He thought if he hitting me a lot, I will like make a dollar from nothing. I don't know. He says he was barely given any food and the drinking water was salty. And when he fell ill, there was no doctor. No one was kind. No one, no one was kind. After you got out that first time, you could have gone home. Actually, yeah. I could. I thought about uh, going back to Syria, but, but if I get back to Syria, I will lose my future and my, and my family's future. He says in the year he spent in Libya, he was thrown into detention four times and made five attempts to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Rescued with him from the smuggler's boat are two women I also meet on the MV Geobarrents, Aya and Reem al-Sakr, cousins from Syria who've shown this same determination to reach Europe. They're making this journey with Aya's four children, aged between six and just ten months old. Reem al-Sakr says they decided to leave Syria after both their husbands were killed in the war. Aya was pregnant with her youngest at the time. They sold their homes and jewellery and flew to Libya with the children. They spent six months in a rented apartment searching for a smuggler to get them to Europe. At one point, Aya says, she and the children and Reem were kidnapped for ransom by a minibus driver, along with other Syrians. They demanded money from us or said they'd kill us. They beat the men and said awful things to the women and scared the children with weapons. When the kidnappers told Reem to call a relative who could pay a ransom, she took a huge risk, calling the Libyan police instead. 
and in this case the authorities intervened. I meet them on their second attempt to cross to Europe. On the boat, there was dizziness and vomiting and fatigue. The children were sick too. It was hot in the day and cold at night. And then the engine cut. Drifting in the darkness, without a satellite phone to call for help, they and the 16-year-old Syrian boy could have joined the more than 2,500 migrants who've died in the Mediterranean this year. If we're, if we're yelling or screaming, who will hear, hear us? But on this night, they were spotted by the MSF team on the MV Geo Barents. It was my, the best time in my life. I started crying because I made it, you know? I, like, four hours before, we were thinking about dying or something. The night before we dock in Italy, the Al Sakar cousins play music on a small speaker that's shaped like a disco ball and flashes lights. It's the one possession they've made sure to keep during their long journey as a distraction for the children. It becomes a party with dancing and singing. A moment of light relief after so much trauma. And the next day, at the Italian port of Salerno, I say goodbye to Reem and Aya al Sakir and her children. She's so, so, so happy to be here, Aya says. They're met by the Italian authorities and the Italian Red Cross and taken to a processing centre. The rescued migrants hope this is the start of a new life. But the next day, by the train station, I see many of the migrants again, and they look lost and in shock. I'm at the station in Salerno, and in the small square in front of the station, there was about 80 to 100 of the guys who were on the MSF ship, and they've spent the night here, and they've all received expulsion orders from Italy. Don Antonio is a priest with the Catholic charity Caritas. He says many told him they simply didn't understand what was happening and that after being handed these expulsion papers, the migrants were left outside the gate of the local government building, miles out of town. Many didn't have money or even a phone. The Caritas volunteers bring the migrants to speak with a lawyer. The expulsion documents claim the migrants opted not to request asylum in Italy. But many here tell the lawyer that there was no proper translation, so they didn't know what they were signing. And now, after all they've been through, they risk being deported back to their home country or detained in Italy. As for Reem and Aya al-Sakir and the children, and the 16-year-old Syrian boy who travelled alone to Europe, they've slipped away on trains bound northward. I couldn't reach the whip-smart boy with fluent English. His plan was to join relatives in Ireland. But I did track down Aya al-Sakir. She tells me she and the children have made it to Germany. Her parents live there, and this is the first time they've met their four grandchildren. She says there were tears of joy. She's claimed asylum there, and she and the children are now living in a government centre while their papers are processed. She doesn't know how long this will take. 
maybe over a year. It can be hard living in the centre, she says, but at least she's brought her children to safety. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. Ari, how much do you know about French history? Well, you know, I spend most of my time thinking about the Roman Empire, but I do know a bit about the French. (laughs) Well, then you must know what today is. Obviously, you're referring to the 100th anniversary of the death of Gustave Eiffel, the creator and namesake of the Eiffel Tower, or Eiffel Tower. And in his honor, organizers had planned a day of events and celebration to be held at the monument, But But the Eiffel Tower, which is typically open 365 days a year and draws around 6 million visitors annually, was closed today as union workers at the tower went on strike ahead of contract negotiations with the city, citing complaints about poor management. So instead of climbing to the top of the tower for that perfect selfie, Tourists had to pack up and escargot home? That's right. They had to baguette lost until, well, whenever the strike is over. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, why it can be so hard to find treatment for gambling addiction, even as options for legalized gaming expand further and further. That's coming up. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. On Wall Street, little change for the markets today. The Dow was up 111 points, about a third of 1% to 37,656. Nasdaq rose 24 points to 15,099, and the S&P 500 gained 6 points to end the day at 4,781. In local business news, Boston-area biotech saw even more layoffs in the fourth quarter after a year of heavy losses. Data compiled by the Boston Business Journal show more than 470 Boston-area employees lost their jobs from October to December, bringing the total for the year to about 3,800. That is a sharp increase from last year, when fewer than 2,500 people lost their jobs. The time is 419. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. 
the Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with rain and even a thunderstorm possible. Patchy fog around the area as well. Temperatures not dropping much down to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, rain all day, thunderstorm possible, highs in the upper 40s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It has never been easier to gamble in the U.S. Almost every state allows some sort of wagering, and sports or online betting is legal in most of the country. An estimated 2% of the population has a gambling disorder. Only a very few get treatment. And that's why advocates are pushing for better access to help and a more unified national effort. New England Public Media's Karen Brown reports. At the MGM Casino in Springfield, Massachusetts, a 60-year-old regular named Monroe is sitting at an electronic craps machine. Let's see if I can win this one. All behind the nine, seven, I win. Nine, I lose. <laughs> he chooses machines that allow small bets for one or five dollars at a time. And now I'm going to take my money out and just walk around with my $12 and be happy. It didn't used to be that way. Monroe asked to keep his last name private because he has a history of gambling addiction. For years, he would come to the casino in the morning and stay, he doesn't even know how long. It's like, do you want to go outside and see the sun? No, I'm down, I gotta get my money back. You get your money back, it's like, I, I gotta get more. And that's how you know when you, you got a problem, when you ain't got nothing time for nothing else. Monroe now gambles on a budget, $50 a day, but that didn't come easily. For a time, he would keep his money in his socks to make it harder to overspend. It never occurred to him to get formal treatment, and he didn't know where to get it anyway. That's pretty common, says Keith White of the National Council on Problem Gambling. You know, right now, we're still kind of sitting back and, and making problem gamblers work hard to find the help that is available. That doesn't work well for any other addiction. Between casinos, the lottery, and now sports and mobile betting, no one in America is far from some form of legal gambling. As a result, researchers estimate around 7 million people have a gambling disorder, the kind that ruins finances, relationships, and jobs. Yet fewer than 1% of them are in treatment. Problem gambling is not like other things where if you build it, they will come. White says gamblers are notoriously reluctant to seek help, so relatively few providers offer it, which in turn makes it hard to find. And there's no national office for gambling addiction, as there is for drugs and alcohol, even though it's been listed in the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry for more than 40 years. It's actually quite a horrifyingly potent disease state in the sense that it's more associated with suicide than any of the other addictions. Dr. Emily Brunner is a gambling specialist on the board of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. 
Most of her gambling patients started out seeking help for drug or alcohol addiction. She then treats them with a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and medications that reduce cravings, but no medication is FDA-approved for gambling. And without a national research arm, she says the body of knowledge is thin. I do think addiction doctors are very interested in addressing it better and learning more about it, but you know, there aren't very many of us and we have a lot of competing priorities. And while gambling can trigger a neurobiological dependence like substance use, Keith White says it's often considered an issue of morality or even skill among doctors as well as gamblers themselves. They think maybe I am a bad gambler. I didn't concentrate hard enough on the cards. That's the rabbit hole Ted Hartwell went down for decades. When he was a kid in Lubbock, Texas, coping with his parents' difficult divorce, he spent weekends with his father at the racetrack. My dad would give each of the kids $20, and that was ours, to wager on the horses. Over time, he moved to Las Vegas and got heavily into slot machines and poker. He took out payday loans and opened secret credit cards. It seemed like the only way I was going to get out of the mess was to gamble higher limits and hit that major jackpot so I could pay off all this hidden debt before anybody found out about it. He says he still didn't think he had a problem until his wife figured out he'd lost a quarter of a million dollars over 10 years. I thought I was on the verge of losing my family, losing access to my little girl who was two years old at that time. For the very first time, I recognized that this was something I needed help for. But he still didn't know how to get it. First stop was a 12-step program that didn't help. He went to a general therapist who had no training in gambling addiction. He picked up a brochure with the 800 Gambler hotline number. And either hung up or pretended I had the wrong number a couple times. Finally, he found an intensive outpatient program specifically for gambling addiction and hasn't gambled in 15 years. Now he works for the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling, where he advocates for better access to treatment. He says there are only about 30 gambling-certified counselors in all of Nevada. The state spends a total of $2 million to address problem gambling, which is a tiny fraction of what the gambling industry brings in. Some states have no state funding for the issue at all. But funding alone doesn't always solve the problem. Take Massachusetts, which earmarks $24 million a year for problem gambling. Yet only 150 therapists in the state are gambling certified, and many don't actually offer treatment. Some clinics even ended their gambling programs. They say clients weren't asking for it. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Bet just $5 to get 200 in bonus bets. And now a younger generation is being drawn into sports betting. With live betting on every NFL game. Phil Sherwood is with the nonprofit Massachusetts Council on Gaming and Health. These are folks who have never played on a slot machine, never scratched a scratch ticket. They placed their first bet when sports betting became legal, and then six weeks later, they're in trouble. Given that sports betting companies are all over the internet and airwaves, even partnering with colleges, Sherwood says there should be as much effort to recruit new therapists and promote gambling helplines. Whether it be in barbershops in urban areas, but on billboards in high traffic areas. And many experts recommend more screening at drug recovery programs or credit agencies to find people at risk of gambling problems. Oh, oh, come on, come on, let's see, see this, see this. If I get this. Even if, like Monroe and Springfield, players don't always recognize the signs. Only time we're in trouble is we ain't got no money. That's how they feel. Monroe says he can live with his current habit, around $300 a week. 
but he never wants to go back to the darkest days of his addiction. And believe me, I, I got some horror stories to tell, but I go keep to the grave because it was that bad. Advocates are now pushing for legislation that would create a national funding stream to study problem gambling. Meanwhile, they want states to better regulate new forms of gambling to prevent addiction in the first place. Public health workers call that putting up fences at the top of the hill rather than ambulances at the bottom. For NPR News, I'm Karen Brown. Chinese automakers are flooding the European market with electric cars, and European drivers are rushing to buy them over better-known brands. Move over Tesla, make room for BYD? We are BYD. You've probably never heard of us. But hey, we know you just want to drive a great electric car. On the next All Things Considered, we'll take a look under the hood of the Chinese EV business. Listen on the radio, online, or on your smart speaker. Just ask for NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the top-level meetings at the White House between Israel's Strategic Affairs Minister and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. In the forecast, rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-40s. Right now, 52 degrees in Boston at 429. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight and Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A migrant surge along the southern U.S. border is topic A as Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas meet in Mexico City with Mexican President Lopez Obrador. In recent weeks, border officials have shut down railroad crossings in El Paso and Eagle Pass, Texas, as a wave of migrants literally from around the world continues to pour across the U.S. border through Mexico. Officials currently are watching the progress of a new caravan of thousands of migrants headed for the U.S. border. Federal prosecutors are asking a judge to bar former President Trump from making what they call improper arguments in his D.C. case, a case that Trump says is interfering with his presidential candidacy. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. Prosecutor Molly Gaston says Trump is making unsupported claims about vindictive prosecution and arguing that the four-count felony indictment will hamstring his political campaign to return to the presidency next year. The special counsel team wants 
wants the judge to prohibit Trump from blaming law enforcement for the Capitol riot on January 6th and to bar testimony about informants in the crowd. The trial's on pause while Trump appeals a ruling about any immunity he may have from federal charges that stem from his actions in the White House. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. A Dutch diplomat will head up a new U.N. post coordinating humanitarian and reconstruction aid for Gaza. Terry Schultz has more on Sigrid Kog. Sigrid Kog was not a surprise choice to become the first senior humanitarian and reconstruction coordinator for Gaza. She spent most of her career working at the U.N., including in the Middle East, before coming back to the Netherlands in 2017 to... Terry Schultz reporting on Wall Street. The Dow closed up 111. The Nasdaq gained 24. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office is suing a crypto firm for allegedly scamming Russian-speaking seniors. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports. The lawsuit says Spirebit betrayed itself as an investment firm that helped customers trade stocks, cryptocurrency, and foreign currency. In reality, the suit says the company was a fake and elderly victims lost thousands of dollars. Earlier this year, NPR profiled a person who lost his life savings, $340,000, after giving Spirebit his money. The Mass Attorney General's office says the company used manipulative ads on social media to lure investors. It hopes the lawsuit will put an end to any fraud. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. A judge in Salem's declaring a mistrial in the murder trial of a man accused of killing an 11-year-old girl. Marvin Skip McClendon is accused of killing Melissa Ann Tremblay in Lawrence back in 1988. McClendon was arrested in Alabama last year after prosecutors say DNA evidence linked him to the crime. The judge in the case declared a mistrial today after jurors said they were deadlocked. Kids and teens are spending more time on social media, and a new study estimates just how much profit these young users generate for online platforms. WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo has more. The study from Harvard estimates users under 18 generated nearly $11 billion of ad revenue for six major social media platforms in 2022. Amanda Rafool is one of the study's authors. When companies are generating this much profit from young users, we can't always trust that they're going to self-regulate. And if youth mental health and profit are at odds with one another, I think that they're always going to choose what's going to maximize the amount of money they make. Rafool says she hopes lawmakers will consider adding more regulations for social media companies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. A $2.5 billion error is still hanging over the state's head. It started when former Governor Charlie Baker used federal funds to pay jobless benefits during the pandemic instead of the state's unemployment trust fund. According to a recent state report, it is still unclear whether Massachusetts will need to repay the money or how the state would do that. Massachusetts is already hundreds of millions of dollars behind projected tax collections. It's 435. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. In sports, Bruins are at the Buffalo Sabres tonight. Celtics are off. They're back tomorrow night. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, rain and a thunderstorm possible with patchy fog around the area. Temperatures not dropping much down to the mid-40s. Right now, 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, 
supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A key member of Israel's war cabinet came to Washington this week, where he met with some top Biden administration officials. Ron Dermer is the Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs and a close confidant of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. His visit comes as differences seem to be growing between the U.S. and Israel over the conduct of the war. Our next guest, Aaron David Miller, is a Middle East analyst who's advised presidents of both parties. He's now with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good to have you back. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, based on their public statements, Biden and Netanyahu seem to be diverging from where they were at the start of the conflict, with the White House saying it wants to see more targeted operations in Gaza and less sweeping destruction, while Netanyahu put out a statement saying the fight is deepening and, quote, this will be a long battle. It's not close to ending. So, are the U.S. and Israel even speaking the same language right now? Uh, there are divergences, uh, although I think they're masked in large part by the uh, president's preternatural support for Israel. Alone among American presidents, he seems to believe that he is literally part of the American story and his uh, relationship with Israeli prime ministers goes back decades. And I think um, those divergences are clear, and yet both sides have a, a real stake. And I think we're now in the third month of this war without an open breach. I don't think there'll be one, in large part because... For An American open breach president, between the U.S. and Israel, you mean? Exactly. Uh, I don't think there'll be one, in large part because certainly from President Biden's perspective, uh, and none of his predecessors uh, fell any differently fighting with an Israeli prime minister publicly. It's messy, it's awkward, it's politically costly, and, and more often than not, it's counter counterproductive. Well, and so do you think we are likely to see a shift towards what Biden is pushing for, more targeted attacks less indiscriminate bombing, or is Netanyahu going to forge ahead with what he says could be months more of this large-scale assault? No, I think the Israelis probably, and I think the IDF or the Israeli Defense Forces will call the shots even more than the United States. I suspect that the Israelis have reached the conclusion, both because mobilizing 360,000 reserves is having a terrible effect on Israeli morale and the Israeli economy. I think the Israelis, by the end of January, will in fact turn to much more intelligence-driven, focused uh, operations, uh, not so much heavy emphasis on artillery and comprehensive airstrikes. And I think that will do a lot, uh, hopefully, to provide greater time and space for the surge. And we really do need a surge of humanitarian assistance into Gaza, and it should minimize Israeli, excuse me, Palestinian deaths and casualties. But there's one other reality, and that is the Israelis are clearly going to be operating in Gaza at some level, I suspect, for months. Well, and this raises the question of what will happen after the conflict, after the war. Netanyahu has asked Ron Dermer to help lead the planning. And this is another place where the U.S. and Israel seem to part ways. The Biden administration wants to see the Palestinian Authority have a role. Netanyahu has rejected that. Do you think that difference can be reconciled? I think that uh, because... Uh, the prime minister has an interest in maintaining this coalition, which happens to have two of the most extremist right-wing ministers as part of it, that he's going to have to figure out a very, very fine line of navigating both uh, rejecting the American advice on one hand, 
but then also privately conveying that the possibility of a Palestinian Authority return um, may be possible. I think it's not possible now, so Mr. Netanyahu may actually benefit from the fact that it may take weeks, if not months, to, uh, to do what the administration wants, which is to create a revitalized Palestinian Authority. The real conflict, I think, may come with the Biden administration's insistence on tethering Gaza to uh, a political solution. And it's clear the administration's view is, uh, however problematic it may be, two states. Just in a, a couple sentences, do you think this war has fundamentally changed the U.S.-Israel relationship, or does it remain more or less what it was? I think it's, it's, it, it remains the same. It's going to be tense, and I think Israel needs a new prime minister in order to set that relationship between the U.S. and Israel on much firmer and stronger ground. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks, as always, for talking with us. Thank, thanks for having me, Aaron. What if Thor was an only child? That is the kind of alternate story Marvel Studios' first animated series, What If, on Disney Plus takes on. Season two, which is premiering now, introduces an original Native American Marvel heroine, Cohorty. She's a Mohawk woman who goes on a quest to discover her power. Ava Pukach of member station WRVO reports the episode takes place almost entirely in the Mohawk language. Doug George Conantio, an Aquaneski Mohawk, is a cultural advisor for the Cohorti episode. He says he remembers reading comics as a kid, but he couldn't relate to them. There wasn't anything in the media at all that showed us in a positive way. Nothing. George Conantio says the few Native characters, if any, were too often on the edge of the story and portrayed using offensive stereotypes. Those figures were angry and, and aggressive and you know, had war paint on and were always in a state of conflict and warfare. And that wasn't, you know, that kind of turned you off as a kid. That's changing. Meet Cohorti, a new original Marvel character. Uh, She's a young Mohawk woman living in the sovereign Haudenosaunee Confederacy prior to the colonization of America. The area today is part of northern New York State in the Adirondack Mountains. The characters speak in the Mohawk language throughout, with subtitles. Here, Cohorti learns about a magical portal in the Forbidden Lake. Forbidden because many people went missing in it. She learns its spirit represented through a blue light seeps through the water, land, and plants. And when the people eat those spirits, they take in some of their power, too. Their language is going to be heard in places the world has never been spoken before. What if writer Ryan Little crafted this episode over four years? He says the goal is to offer the most accurate depiction of every Mohawk costume, basket, and tattoo. Animation allowed Marvel to be precise. Using the Mohawk language, he says, helped fill out the story with full period accuracy. So just to totally showcase them as a people, it felt like we wanted to take the full ride and not hold anything back. Little says for the latest season of What If, Marvel uses Cohorti to build on traditional Mohawk teachings and beliefs, using animation to go back into the past in ways few comics and movies have before. She ventures towards this sort of local legend of theirs called the Forbidden Lake, um, that all they know about is it glows with power and anybody who enters it disappears. And so she sort of explores it in a moment of duress and ends up having a gigantic adventure and cool Marvel things ensue. While Little wrote Cohorti's first adventure, he hopes a Mohawk writer will get to write the next. He worked with the Mohawk people throughout the process, including historian advisor George Conantio. 
He helped the Marvel team accurately depict what village life looked like, the environment of their traditional territory within the Adirondack Mountains, and the appearance of the native peoples. This is a new, entirely new, uh, innovative way of, of looking at uh, indigenous people. And it destroys all those, those stereotypes of the past. It just, you know, just obliterates them when they see this. It's a start, at least. And George Conantillo says depicting indigenous peoples in a positive manner, as Marvel is doing, could help change the way native kids see themselves. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Jews, Muslims, and Christians typically worship at separate institutions. In Omaha, Nebraska, the Tri-Faith Initiative works to close that gap both physically and spiritually. Now its members are working to support each other and withstand the strains on relationships that have come with the war between Israel and Hamas. Nebraska Public Media's Jolie Peel reports. On the Tri-Faith Initiative's campus, there are four buildings. There's a mosque, synagogue, church, and an interfaith center. A bridge named after the prophet Abraham connects them. The initiative started 17 years ago as an experiment to bring different faith communities together to learn and understand one another. Executive Director Wendy Goldberg says the interfaith community is concerned about the impact of the war. We are worried about our ability to withstand the tension from outside of this beautiful beacon of light to tear us apart, to make us take sides, and to break down the beautiful dream that we have built here and replace it with fear. On a recent chilly night, people came to the Trifaith campus for a silent candlelit vigil. They walked along the Abraham Bridge, grieved the lives lost in the Israel-Hamas war, and prayed for an end to the violence. Abdul Maki, the secretary for the American Muslim Institute, says Arabs who come to pray at the mosque have connections in Palestine, Lebanon, and Egypt. It's heart-wrenching, right, to see people who look like you and talk like you being collectively punished. And the death toll continues to rise. Maki says to members of the Muslim group, it feels like the world's governments are just watching as the violence continues. Invite all those who so choose to rise in body and or in spirit. Rabbi Benjamin Scharf leads Temple Israel on the Tri-Faith campus. He says the Jewish community has been hurting since the initial attacks on October 7th, and their anguish has grown as the war continues. Just as we went through the process of learning about everything that transpired and awaiting further information only to be heartbroken over and over and over again. In an effort to overcome the fear and anxiety that's come as a result of the Israeli-Hamas war, the Jews, Muslims, and Christians at the Tri-Faith Initiative are showing up at each other's prayer services. Reverend Sarah Rental-Jones at Countryside Community Church says the Christian congregation recently held its own silent vigil as the members of the church work to support and understand the pain of their Jewish and Muslim friends. We just felt like we could offer space and presence, and we felt as though silence would be better than making an attempt at words that might fall short. 
The leaders at the Tri-Faith Campus say they can't control what's happening overseas, but they can control their relationships with each other. Goldberg says overcoming religious barriers and building those relationships begins with simple discussions. We need to sit together in small conversations and believe that peaceful proximity is possible and that the world is watching to see if we can maintain it here in Omaha, Nebraska. It's a message of hope from an alliance of the three religions as they work together on one campus. For NPR News, I'm Jolie Peel in Omaha. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up just after the top of the hour, why Republicans have made education a top election issue, when for most people it is not a top election issue. Also, in just a few minutes, remembering Tommy Smothers, one of the Smothers brothers who has died at the age of 86. That and much more coming up here on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, it will be rain and possible thunderstorms tonight, lows dropping to the mid-40s. More clouds and rain tomorrow could see a thunderstorm in the first half of the day. Highs in the upper 40s Friday and Saturday, mostly cloudy both days with a chance of showers. Highs in the mid-40s Sunday and the holiday Monday should be mostly sunny. Highs in the low 40s. Remember, coming to City Space January 4th, Dr. Pooja Lakshman discusses her new book, Challenging the Industrial Wellness Complex. Tickets should, can be found at WBUR.org events. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When pollsters ask Republican voters for their top priorities, the economy tends to come out on top. Immigration is also up there. Foreign policy, sometimes. Often, education is towards the bottom. And that may come as a surprise, given how much candidates talk about schools. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports on the puzzling role education is playing in the Republican primary. Talking about schools is a reliable applause line for Republican candidates. Here's Donald Trump this month in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. On day one, I will sign a new executive order to cut federal funding for any school pushing critical race theory, transgender insanity, and other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content. Schools are even more central to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign as when he spoke in November at a restaurant to Davenport. As the father of a 6'5 and a 3-year-old, I believe that kids should be able to go to school, watch cartoons, just be kids without having an agenda shoved down their throat. The issue of how gender and race are taught in schools has been a major focus for Republican candidates, even while the issue may not really drive votes. Frank Luntz is a Republican strategist. People confuse the yelling for the priorities. They confuse passion for prioritization. 
So actually, that's the best. I need to write that down because that actually, for me, is a great way to explain it. After conducting many voter focus groups, here's his big takeaway. Yes, transgender and all of that gets people to yell. But that's not what is really, that's not what people really care about. One thing that's going on. In this primary, talking about schools and talking about education are often different things. A lot of the Republicans' campaign rhetoric hasn't been about student achievement, school choice, or standardized testing. Rather, it's about playing out culture wars on the battleground of K-12 schools. That's a mistake, according to Luntz's analysis. He points to DeSantis as the candidate getting this the most wrong. He's using it as a surrogate for the culture wars. And that's not the way to approach education. The public wants to take partisan politics out of education. The story of Republican candidates talking about schools goes back to school closures during COVID, Luntz says. In addition to worrying about learning loss, parents also got a view of school curricula, and some didn't like what they saw, whether it was about culture or simply about how reading and math were taught. All of that may be true, but according to Heather Harding, schools also got weaponized for political purposes. Harding is educational director of the Campaign for Our Shared Future, which focuses on equity in education. I think that the political strategists then leverage that fear and discontent to really gin up a lot of things in misinformation. In conversations with Iowa voters over the last few months, few brought up education or schools as a top priority. However, when asked directly, many did have strong opinions. Dave Meggers is a farmer who came out to see Trump in Davenport in September. He said the price of fuel is his top concern. But when I asked about schools, he talked about working with other parents to influence the district. We're tough on our school board down there on different such situations. One thing was, uh, you know, the books in school and stuff like that. Uh, and we we were one of the first ones down there to get our kids out of masks. Lori Tianko was volunteering for DeSantis at a November rally in Des Moines. Cultural issues in schools are a top priority for her. She pointed to her grandson and how his parents reacted to the school's teaching about LGBT issues. They pulled him out and homeschooled him because it, they didn't want that being forced on them, which goes against our, you know, the Christian moral values that we have. But there's a wide range of opinions. At a recent Nikki Haley event in Clear Lake, Stacey Dawn, the president of the city's Chamber of Commerce, said the focus on culture war issues leaves her cold. I think that when you take it down to race and gender, you're really missing the point. So whatever we need to do to make it so our kids are able to go to school, to enjoy going to school, and to learn what they need to learn to be competitive in an international market today is what's really important. Indeed, Haley's event had at least one voter who says she disagrees with a key Republican culture war issue, how to treat LGBT kids. Here's Michelle Garland, a psychology professor at nearby Waldorf University. The suicide rate among gay teens is the highest of all groups. And they have a right to be called by whatever gender they prefer to be called by. That makes Garland unusual among GOP primary voters. But then this is the thing about prioritization. Trans kids aren't her top priority. Israel is. And she likes where Haley stands on Israel. If focusing on education and not culture will win voters over, it may mean any candidate would have to back off of those talking points in a general election. Haley, meanwhile, does sometimes talk about improving the education system. Here she was in Waukee this month. Only 31% of 8th graders are proficient in reading. Only 27% of 8th graders are proficient in math. 
we don't do something about this, we're going to be in a world of hurt 10 years from now. Then again, she later leaned into culture war issues as well, specifically transgender girls playing girls' sports, which Haley calls, quote, the women's issue of our time. Strong girls become strong women. Strong women become strong leaders. None of that happens if you have biological boys playing in women's sports. We've got to cut that out. Once again, the line got big applause. But it's not clear how much it might sway voters. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. Tom Smothers, the elder half of the Smothers Brothers, has died at the age of 86. The duo was hugely popular in the late 1960s and known for subversive political humor. NPR's Netta Ulubi has our remembrance. When the Smothers Brothers showed up on TV, they looked like such nice boys. They wore nice suits and ties. They had nice short hair. They sang and played so nicely. Tom was the one who messed things up. Dick was the good one. If you're going to sing like that, then you don't sing the rest of the show, okay? Yeah, well, Mom always liked you best. Tom Smothers was also the creative force who pushed the envelope, first gingerly, then hard. I think President Johnson should come up with Here, the brothers are making fun of an initiative from then-President Johnson that would tax American tourists leaving the country. What can the president do to make people want to stay in this country? Well, he could quit. (laughs) Making fun of the president on TV was then unheard of. Johnson called the network to complain. Tom Smothers said he would tone things down a little if CBS would let him book folk singer Pete Seeger, who went on the show with the song widely understood as critical of the Vietnam War and President Johnson's leadership. We're waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. The Smothers Brother comedy hours was a constant battle against censorship. Tom Smothers stuck in drug references, skits about interracial marriage and the draft. CBS had to run every show past its stations in advance. Tom Smothers fought for freedom of expression and fought for a whole generation and lost. That's WHYY's David B. N. Cooley on Fresh Air in 2010. He said the hit show got canceled in 1970. Tom Smothers, free speech advocate, blazed a trail for comedians such as John Stewart and helped launch the careers of Steve Martin and Rob Reiner. Tom Smothers died Tuesday of cancer. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. 
I'm Deepa Fernandez. Native people have been historically excluded from so many professions and none more so than the ranks of federal judges. Now, two Native women have been confirmed as judges on the federal bench, one in Oklahoma and one in Hawaii. Advocates say it's a huge step forward in representation. Next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Michigan Supreme Court upholds a lower court ruling allowing former President Donald Trump to appear on the state's presidential primary ballot. It is Wednesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars in for Lisa Mullins coming up. The ruling in Michigan, a key state in the 2024 election and one that stood at the center of the 2020 election. Also this hour, high-level meetings between India and Russia's top diplomats and what that means for global geopolitics. I think it's to reassure the Russians that there is no pivot away from Russia. And the push by a bipartisan group of lawmakers to end the practice of legacy admissions at the nation's colleges and universities. It's 501. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other top Biden administration officials are holding talks with the president of Mexico today. The meeting in Mexico City is focused on how to slow the surge of migrants arriving at the southern border. The Israeli military is expanding its ground offensive in central Gaza in what it's calling a new battle zone. NPR's Nina Kravinsky reports people have been ordered to evacuate urban refugee camps as forces continue to bombard the region. In a briefing Tuesday, a spokesperson for the Israeli military said it had expanded combat to densely populated urban refugee camps in the middle section of the enclave. This comes after intense airstrikes in those areas, including an airstrike on the Magazi refugee camp. Hospital records reviewed by AP show at least 106 people were killed there. The Israeli military says they're reviewing the incident. In a statement yesterday, a spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights said they are, quote, gravely concerned about the continued bombardment of middle Gaza. The Magazi strike is likely one of the deadliest strikes of the offensive so far, which Israel launched after Hamas attack killed 1,200 people in Israel. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Biden administration says it continues to monitor a major shipping channel in the Red Sea. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the stepped-up maritime surveillance comes after Iranian-backed attacks on commercial ships by Houthi rebels. This has been one of Iran's preferred ways of projecting its influence in the region. I mean, you don't see Iranian forces being shipped out in large numbers to conflict areas in the Mideast. But what you do see are Iranian-funded militia groups. In action, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, various militias in Iraq. NPR's Peter Kenyon. 
Former President Donald Trump's Christmas message that President Biden and others should quote, rotten hell, is getting a chilly reception from some Democrats in Congress. Quinn Kleinfelter from member station WDET reports. Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, for one, calls Trump's social media tirade on Christmas, quote, pathetic for someone seeking to return to the White House. Dingell says partisan name-calling is contributing to a rising tide of threats against public officials. We are allowing this sense of hatred towards each other, this sense of division, quite frankly. We're almost beginning to normalize violence in some cases. is not okay. Trump seemed to respond to Dingell on his Truth Social platform, saying she has not been thankful enough to him for helping arrange funeral honors for her late husband, John Dingell, who was the longest-serving member in the history of Congress. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 111 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The real estate market heated up across Massachusetts in 2023. High interest rates put a squeeze on home sales, but strong demand and a lack of housing inventory kept prices inflated. WBUR's Ninja Enwemeka has more. Overall, 2023 was a great year for sellers. Demand exceeded homes on the market, keeping prices high across the state. But David McCarthy of the Massachusetts Realtors Association says some homes sat unsold because they were priced a little too aggressively. And that's shocking to some people when we say that, but it is happening. But if you've got the right property in the right location presented well, you're going to do just great. McCarthy says some homeowners are waiting for lower interest rates before they jump into the market. If they list their homes, they'll add much-needed inventory across the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. A new study from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Health is showing the long-term effects of a low-carb diet. Research assistant Binkai Liu analyzed the diets of more than 120,000 Americans over 32 years old. She says, on average, low-carb diets high in healthy plant-based sources were linked to a lower rate of long-term weight gain compared to diets high in animal-based proteins. The quality matters. It is always wise to choose a diet emphasizing fresh fruits and non-starchy vegetables, whole grains, nuts, legumes, olive oil or other vegetable oils and other foods such as coffee, tea, or just water. She notes people who were younger, heavier, and had less physical activity benefited the most from these types of diets. Credit card skimming devices have been found at five supermarkets run by Roche Brothers. Those are devices that can steal financial information. The devices were found at Roche Brothers stores in Wellesley and Natick, Brothers Marketplace in Weston, and Sudbury Farms in Sudbury and Needham. Customers who used self-checkout lanes at those stores on or before Christmas Eve could have been affected. The company says so far it has not received any reports of customers having their information stolen. The state auditor's office has identified more than $12 million in public benefits fraud in fiscal year 2023. The majority of that fraud, about $7 million worth, affected the Department of Transitional Assistance. In all, the State Bureau of Special Investigations completed 5,100 fraud investigations for the fiscal year that ended June 30th. Sports Bruins are at the Buffalo Sabres tonight. In the forecast, rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Clouds and rain tomorrow. Highs in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It appears efforts to keep former President Donald Trump off Michigan's Republican presidential primary ballot have failed. The Michigan Supreme Court issued an order today that backs up lower court rulings. Basically, the court decided it's too early to make that call, even though the state's presidential primary is just two months away. Michigan Public Radio senior political correspondent Rick Pluta is here with more. Hi, Rick. Hello. Tell us more about what the court ruled today. Okay, so the Michigan Supreme Court, which is the state's highest court, in an unsigned order, it refused to review lower court decisions. And those decisions said there's really no case to look at unless Trump becomes the Republican nominee. That is, Republicans have to choose their nominee before the judicial branch gets involved. And remind us why this is before the courts at all. Sure. There are actually several cases like this around the country, and some Trump critics say he is not eligible to serve because he violated the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. That clause was directed at Confederate rebels following the Civil War, but there are Democrats, independents, and some Republicans who say Trump's involvement in January 6th puts him in the same category, insurrectionist. And they say that makes him ineligible to hold public office, including the presidency. So the Michigan Supreme Court has said the question of whether Trump can run does not need to be resolved unless he is actually chosen by Republicans to be their nominee. What happens if they do choose him as the nominee? Well, the people who want Trump off the primary ballot say they will be back in court to make the same case, that if Trump is nominated, he is still not eligible to be on Michigan's general election ballot because of the insurrection clause. This is their attorney, Mark Brewer. We think the Supreme Court should have taken the case and decided on the merits, but this doesn't prevent us from uh, bringing a lawsuit if Trump becomes the nominee and attempts to be on the Michigan general election ballot next year. And I think it's fair to predict chaos, confusion, outrage if Michigan Republicans vote for Trump and then are told they need a do-over. State and local election officials will be reaching for heartburn relief. It's also possible that if courts punt again and Trump gets on the November ballot and wins, we could see the same challenge filed again. And as we've said, Michigan is far from the only state where this is playing out. Just last week, Colorado's Supreme Court uh, issued a decision going the other way, saying Trump cannot appear on their state's ballot. So what does this all mean, big picture? Well, the Colorado decision is on hold while that's appealed. uh, But we do now have court decisions from multiple states falling on both sides of the question. So this could be and likely is headed to the U.S. Supreme Court for a resolution that covers the entire country. Here's Mark Brewer again. Ultimately, we need a uniform decision from the United States Supreme Court that applies in every state. Mm -hmm. But that could also create a different set of problems. Like, what if some states have already started voting or printed ballots or already mailed out absentee ballots? What about states that have ballot deadlines already enshrined in state law? There's just more questions than answers. That is Michigan Public Radio Network's Rick Pluta. Thanks for your reporting. My pleasure.
India's top diplomat is in the middle of a five-day visit to Russia. Indian Foreign Minister S. Jai Shankar met today with his Russian counterpart and President Vladimir Putin to discuss their economic ties and security. And this meeting comes at a delicate time. India, a major power that the U.S. has been courting, has maintained friendly relations with Russia, even after their full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. And India has propped up Russia's economy by being a major consumer of their oil. So what could closer relations between the two mean for the U.S.? To unpack all of this, we're joined by Rajan Menon. He's the director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, which is an American foreign policy think tank. Welcome. Hi. I want to start with a big picture question, if we can. India and the United States are close partners, but India is also working closely with Russia. Help us understand this dynamic. So during the Cold War, India's true and tested friend was Russia, and that was for two reasons. The main Indian threat came from two countries, Pakistan, which was an ally of the United States, and from China, which for most of the Cold War was odds at odds with Russia. So there was almost a natural alignment between the two. In the post-Cold War period, that has changed. Gradually, India has shifted toward deepening its economic and security ties with the West, not at the expense of Russia, but Russia certainly has become somewhat less important to India and is very very much aware of that, just to give you one data point. So in the Cold War, 90% of Indian weapons in dollar value came from Russia. Now it's about uh, 45%, but that's down from 65% about seven um, years ago. Meanwhile, arms imports from the United States, but especially France, are up significantly. And the Russians since that competition, arms exports are very important to them. So that's just one dimension. Let's talk about this trip and these meetings. India's foreign minister has met with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, as well as Russian President Vladimir Putin. What is the significance of these meetings? I think it's to reassure the Russians that there is no pivot away from Russia. By the way, India has a strong reason not to do that because Russia and China are in an ever closer relationship. And the last thing India wants to do in any way is to alienate Russia. So one is to reassure. And the other is to consolidate in areas that are important. The key one is the military one because that is where the strongest ties are. So the center piece is political and security ties. What has the reaction in Washington been to this visit? I mean, to date, Biden administration officials have not been openly critical of India, despite Washington's posture, as we were talking about, toward Russia. Well, the United States' main interest, and India's main interest, by the way, is to forge a kind of partnership because both of them see the big challenger to both of their security interests down the line is China. And the U.S., I think, is well aware that the Indians are not about to forsake the relationship with Russia for the reasons that I've explained. And so the U.S. understands this and is playing it fairly coolly and calmly. I don't think there's a great deal of consternation about the fact that Jayashankar is visiting Moscow. I think it would be unusual were he not doing that. When you think about this five-day trip and its totality as someone who watches and understands these relationships well, is there one or two things you think we might look for at the end of the trip to understand its significance and what it might mean for the future of these relations? Yeah, I'll tell you one future thing that I have on my mind about this relationship. The Indians have got to be looking with some concern about the performance of Russian weapons. It would not surprise me were the Indians to continue their diversification and to build stronger military ties 
for defense production and arms imports with the United States, with Israel, with France, with Germany, all of which they've been doing. That, of course, would not be to Russia's liking. Arms exports are a very important source of revenue for Russia, and India is, I think, the number two now arms importer in the world. So it is a big market with a lot of stake for Russia. We've been speaking with Rajan Menon. He's the director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, an American foreign policy think tank. Thank you. My pleasure. The New York Times is suing the creator of ChatGPT. The Times claims OpenAI developed the chatbot by using articles published in the newspaper without permission. It's the latest in a growing number of copyright infringement suits OpenAI is facing. And to help us make sense of this, we are joined by NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ari. What exactly does the New York Times claim in this suit? Essentially, that OpenAI's popularity and profits depend in part on its copying of millions of New York Times articles. Now, to back up for a moment, the way an AI chatbot like ChatGPT works is it hoovers up vast amounts of material from the Internet. That chatbot is then trained on this material. And when someone like you or I asks it a question, all of its answers are informed by the text. And some of that text is copyrighted. That means it is not for free. Now, I reported back in August, Ari, that The Times threatened to sue OpenAI after talks about a potential licensing deal fell apart. And today, The Times officially gave up and decided to drag OpenAI to court over this. The Times is also suing Microsoft, which is OpenAI's biggest financial backer. And what have OpenAI and Microsoft said in response to the suit? So far, the companies haven't responded directly, but in the past, OpenAI has defended its mass scraping of the internet by citing something called fair use doctrine, which is a legal theory that basically says in certain circumstances, like for research, teaching, criticism, parody, it's okay to use copyrighted material without permission. OpenAI says it's relying on huge swaths of the internet under fair use law. Now, the Times, of course, is not buying that. In its lawsuit, the paper says ChatGPT is actually stealing its audience away from the paper. Basically, that ChatGPT has become a competitor of the Times by serving up portions of its news articles with no payment or benefit to the paper. The New York Times is obviously a big player in the news industry. Could this lawsuit affect all of digital publishing? You know, it could. The question of whether AI companies have followed copyright law in building these super powerful chatbots is unresolved. And many other publishers have the same concerns. And it really strikes a nerve for many media organizations that have become increasingly leery of Silicon Valley. News outlets, as we know, have long been reliant on search engines and social media. You know, that's how we reach digital audiences. But, you know, it was a promising partnership that really soured fast. You know, tech companies have moved away from the news just as they're pocketing lots and lots of digital advertising dollars and media companies like The Times want to avoid repeating history with the rise of AI. And just briefly, what are some possible outcomes of this suit? Yeah, you know, Ari, this suit can be really damaging for OpenAI. The worst possible outcome for them is that a judge orders them to destroy the data set that ChatGPT is built on. And I've talked to many legal and technical experts who say, I don't know how ChatGPT would function at all without this data set. Now, it's a pretty extreme outcome, but it is within the realm of possibility. So we will see how this lawsuit shakes out. NPR's Bobby Allen, thank you. Thanks, Ari.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the new report detailing how Russia and the Wagner Group have made more than $2.5 billion trading African gold since the invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event, happening now. More at CircleFurniture.com. On Wall Street today, it was a little change for the markets as they rose slightly. Dow was up 111 points, about a third of 1% to 37,656. NASDAQ rose 24 points to 15,099. And the S&P 500 gained 6 points to end the day at 4,781. In local business news, a major Korean restaurant chain is expanding into Massachusetts. K-Pot says it plans to open four locations in Malden, Methuen, Dedham, and West Springfield. It is not clear when any of those locations will open. The company's website lists each as coming soon. The K-Pot chain has grown from its initial start in New York five years ago to more than 50 locations nationwide. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza, start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with rain and a thunderstorm possible. Patchy fog as well. Temperatures dropping to the mid-40s. Right now, it is 50 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Scott Detrow. A new report details how the Wagner Mercenary Group uses gold mining in Africa to funnel money to the Kremlin. According to the Blood Gold Report, Wagner has laundered some $2.5 billion to Russia since its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year in an effort to support the war effort. And this is all in spite of global sanctions that have shut off the Russian economy from much of the world, or tried to at least. The report was produced by the Consumer Choice Center as well as Democracy 21, a nonprofit that tracks corruption and advocates for government transparency. Jessica Berlin is a co-author of the report. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. When you use the phrase blood gold, uh, tell us what you mean by that. The term blood gold is coined to describe the gold that's being mined and laundered into international markets to finance the Russian state and in turn enable the Russian state to wage its war of aggression on Ukraine, as well as to commit atrocities against people in Syria and across the African continent. So the report focuses on three countries, Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic. Wagner has a presence in a number of countries. Why were these three so important for what you were trying to look at here? Well, these countries are where Russia's blood gold trade 
um, has really taken off. They're the primary targets for Russia's operations in the gold industry. And also they demonstrate very clearly the model of how Wagner operates on the continent and is able to exert increasing economic and political influence there. Tell us about that model. I know it probably differs a little bit from country to country, but there's a typical playbook that we're seeing here. Tell us how it works. For example, in the Central African Republic, um, Wagner has already been collaborating and operating with the regime there since um, 2017. They were given basically exclusive mining rights for the country's largest gold mine in return for propping up the regime there. They're basically what can be considered as a private security company giving the regime both physical and political protection. Mm -hmm. They're targeting opposition groups, um, unleashing a lot of the kind of disinformation and hybrid warfare tactics against opponents and critics of the regime. And this model of going after critics and opposition in defense of the regime, the paying client, then following this up with disinformation, with uh, broad and sophisticated media strategies to spread confusion and fake news mm -hmm. and slander um, against opponents. And then lastly, of course, the deployment of Wagner mercenaries against the communities and the opponents of the regime who are standing in their way. And of course, there's been two years of international sanctions on Russia right now. Are current sanctions uh, allegedly trying to address this income stream? What is the state of things right now? What are you seeing? What's working? What's not? In order to reduce Wagner's ability to profit off of gold on the continent, we need to heavily increase the sanctions and how we uh, target the actors involved in the blood gold trade. This means not just going after Wagner on the supply side, but going after the regimes who are contracting them on the demand side. Um, we also need to much more strongly control the supply chains and inflict sanctions on the intermediaries in, for example, Dubai, Hong Kong, the Philippines, who are engaged in the gold laundering, if you will, and, and make it more difficult uh, and expensive for middlemen to have anything to do with Wagner and with Russian gold. That's Jessica Berlin. She co-authored a new report analyzing how the Wagner Group is funding Russia's war effort with billions of dollars in African gold. Thank you so much. Thank you. This year's Kennedy Center honorees are Billy Crystal, Dionne Warwick, Renee Fleming, Queen Latifah, and Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. They were in Washington, D.C. earlier this month for a splashy celebration, and tonight is your chance to see that star-studded event on TV. NPR's Elizabeth Blair was there in person and has a preview of what to expect. For Kennedy Center honoree Queen Latifah, it was an all-ages tribute. Yes, my name is Savannah Zoe McConaughey, a.k.a. Van Van. Before the show, five-year-old Van Van told me she'd be performing one of her favorite Queen Latifah songs. You and I, Tiwa, you and I, Tiwa. Every 
year, the Kennedy Center gathers A-list talent to salute the honorees with performances. They keep the lineup a secret, and something special about the broadcast is that you get to see the honorees react. They typically sit in box seats with the president and first lady. This year, when the Clark sisters performed for Queen Latifah, she was on her feet beaming and singing along. You made my day. You Honoree Dionne Warwick is not just known for her impeccable vocals. She's also got a huge following on social media. Saturday Night Live cast member Ego Wodum joked that Warwick is never at a loss for words. Even now, when people ask about all that she's done, she says, I don't know why people are so curious about my life. They need to get their own. Musical performances for Warwick included Mickey Guyton and The Spinners. Barry Gibb was celebrated for having written hundreds of songs. He and his brothers, the late Robin and Maurice Gibb, started performing as the Bee Gees in 1958. Their songs for the 1977 movie Saturday Night Fever are iconic. Movies, TV, theater, Billy Crystal has done it all. He was honored by his friend Rob Reiner. He directed Crystal in This Is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally. Not only was he great as Harry Burns, but Bill wrote what I believe is maybe the funniest line in all of movie history, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda offered this musical tribute to Crystal. Making us laugh on that show with three letters, courting Meg Ryan in cable-knit sweaters, hosting the Oscars, we said, oh, he sings. These are a few of our favorite things. The Kennedy Center Honors recognize artistic excellence. Renee Fleming is a world-renowned opera singer and an advocate for mental health. She made her Broadway debut in Carousel in 2018. In her honor, Titus Burgess performed one of the musical's most famous songs. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. And don't be afraid of the dark. The Kennedy Center Honors airs on CBS and streams on Paramount Plus tonight. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up in a few minutes on All Things Considered, the bipartisan effort to end legacy admissions at American colleges and universities. Forecast says rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-40s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston at 529. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. 
The Mekong River in Southeast Asia is home to countless endangered species. It's also a vital source of food that critics say could be wiped out with the construction of a new dam. This won't be a gradual loss situation. It's going to be quick. The, the fishery will collapse. Tens of millions of people are going to suffer immediately. The Mekong under threat, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Chiavone. As a new caravan of thousands of U.S.-headed migrants takes shape in Mexico, a top U.S. delegation is in Mexico City for talks with Mexico's president. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are meeting with Mexican President Lopez Obrador, urging him to do more to limit a surge of migrants from around the world at the southern U.S. border. Texas officials have created new laws to reduce the migrant surge into their state, but the public there appears skeptical. Texas Public Radio's Marianne Navarro reports. Governor Greg Abbott recently signed several pieces of border-related legislation for things like providing more funding for border wall construction and increasing penalties for human smugglers. The poll from the Texas Politics Project and the University of Texas at Austin found only about a quarter of Texas voters were very or extremely confident this kind of legislation improved border security. Though about 40 percent of those surveyed strongly support a bill that makes it a state crime to enter Texas illegally. 1,200 registered voters participated in the poll. For NPR News, I'm Marianne Navarro in San Antonio. And the legal dispute over Apple Watch technology, an appellate court has paused a ban on the import of its newest smartwatches. NPR's Dara Kerr reports. Last week, the International Trade Commission ordered Apple to stop importing two of the latest versions of its Apple Watch. The move comes after a medical technology company alleged Apple had copied its patent for a blood oxygen sensor, which can read a person's pulse. The company filed for an emergency request with a federal appeals court asking for a halt on the import ban. The court said it would temporarily pause the ban. NPR's Dara Kerr. Wall Street, the Dow closed up 111. The Nasdaq was up 24. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Tens of thousands of Massachusetts residents will get new subsidies to help pay for health insurance in the new year. That after lawmakers approved an expansion of the state connector care program in the state budget. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports. Advocates have been pushing to expand benefits for years, and Governor Maura Healey signed off. There has never been more help available to more people than there is today. Audrey Morse-Gasteyer runs the Health Connector, the state's marketplace for insurance. So that healthcare isn't one of those things they have to make sacrifices on. They can afford to go to the doctor, they can afford to get care, they can afford to fill a prescription, is really what we're all about. As of January 1st, people who make up to $73,000 a year can get health plans with low or no premiums, and they won't have to pay deductibles. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is investigating the death of a worker in Westboro today. The Worcester County DA's office says it appears the victim was working on a tractor trailer when it fell on him. The victim's name has not been released. The former head of the state's Commission for the Blind was paid as an advisor for months after he left, for the, left the post over allegations of verbal abuse and mismanagement. David D'Arcangelo stepped down shortly after the allegations surfaced in April. 
The Boston Globe reports he received more than $50,000 as an advisor through August when his term would have ended. It is unclear what work, if any, he completed during that time. There will be a heavy police presence in Boston for the city's annual first night celebration this weekend, but Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says there are no known credible threats targeting the event. City officials are encouraging revelers to avoid driving and use public transportation instead. It's 534. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar with scratch kitchens customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston, Burton'sGrill.com, and Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at StoneZoo.org. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with rain and a possible thunderstorm. Temperatures down in the mid-40s. Clouds and rain tomorrow. Highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been a big year for NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Series. From huge names like Post Malone and Maluma to emerging artists like Tiny Desk Contest winner Little Moon, there were dozens of incredible performances this year. We've given a few of our colleagues from NPR Music the difficult task of picking their favorites of 2023. Kicking us off is NPR Music writer and host Stephen Thompson. We did more than 100 Tiny Desk concerts this year, so even narrowing down a top 10 seems impossible, but it is possible to pick just one favorite because this is the year we finally put out a Tiny Desk concert with Guar. Guar is a long-running heavy metal band whose members are all uh, intergalactic monsters. People think of Guar as just about the most over-the-top band on Earth, and the idea of bringing them to the tiny desk created uh, a lot of promise. Even as they were singing these raunchy songs with titles like Sex Cow, there was something still kind of weirdly wholesome about it. It wasn't family-friendly at all, but it wasn't that different from when we had the gang from Sesame Street show up. Guar is this very extreme band, and yet they still kind of came in with the idea of meeting us on our level. And so at one point they did like an NPR fundraising drive. They made jokes about Terry Gross. Terry's friggin' gross. Hey, Terry, hey, watch gross. your mouth. Hey, no, she's, she's Why are you calling whoa, 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 people names? No, she is a gross. She comes hey. from a long line of grosses. Terry she's Gross a gross is a national treasure, so you shut yeah. your trap. And I, I just thought it was so sweet in a way that they kind of took the assignment at face value and had fun with it. I'll be your monster, baby! <laughs> You know, I've heard a lot of people describe 
the Guar Tiny Desk is like the pinnacle of Tiny Desk concerts, like something so outrageous and surprising that that it can't be topped. Hiding under your bed. Better sleep with the light on, Been a while since I fell. To me, I don't see it as a pinnacle. I see it as a starting point. You know, I, I personally have a couple of very stupid and weird and funny ideas for Tiny Desk Concerts, and I'm just one guy on the team, you know? So I see Guar not as an achievement so much as a promise for 2024 and beyond. Hey, this is Ana Maria Sayer. I'm the host of NPR Music's Alt Latino, and my favorite Tiny Desk moment from this year was the legend La Diva La Caballota, Evie Queen's Tiny Desk. Vamos a llevarlos. Let me take you to my motherland, Puerto Rico, that is, okay? Hey, you here? Evie Queen is an absolute legend. She is one of the first females who took reggaeton big from Puerto Rico. It's a huge deal that she came to play for us because she's essentially someone who helped create the genre that a lot of us are now so familiar with. A lot of people struggle with adapting their music to the tiny desk because no in-ears, no monitors, and you got to create those percussive beats that for reggaeton especially are so essential to what make it exciting, to what make people want to move. And so when people came through and they saw the setup for Evie Queen, everyone kept asking me, where are the drums? Where are the drums? And I kept saying, don't worry, just wait, it's Evie, she can do anything. And sure enough... With no drums, with just a piano, strings, and her voice, she carried the energy of a dembow beat. He dice, one, two, three, let's go! Oh my god, it's taking me back to that moment. I mean, to hear Quiero Bailar, it's like the song that you put on if you really need that pump up, if you really need to feel good about yourself, about being a woman, and to, to hear her do it, just uh, incredible. She was not afraid, by any means, to say what she was thinking, which feels very fitting for an artist like herself, because to be a pioneer in this space, to be an Evie Queen, to be a woman who is taken seriously as a rapper, as a reggaetonera, I mean, you have to wear everything you think and you say on your sleeve, and in this tiny desk in particular, she showed up with her actions and showed that she's not all talk and she's really all work and game and hustle and she brings that feminine and feminist energy to our stage and that's amazing. My name is Bobby Carter and I'm the series producer for The Tiny Desk. And coming up at the end of the year, the highlight for me is Scarface's Tiny Desk. A bold statement is that Scarface has the best hip-hop tiny desk that we've ever recorded. I got this love forming in my life for this game, and indeed the form of life, and that's a shame how a man can fall in love with leaves and not a brain, not afraid to let you up and leave it. 
Scarface is one third of a legendary hip hop group, the Ghetto Boys. Um, and then in the early 90s, Scarface went solo, and that's when he really blossomed. I think the thing that sets him apart from so many of the other greats is his ability to tell stories. Stories of his upbringing, the stories of street life, but in a vulnerable sense. He's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, so he's just a legend in the game, 30, 40 years, still doing There was a part on I Seen a Man Die, and that song is walking you through someone actually leaving the physical life, and it's a bone-chilling moment. He greets his father with his hands out, rehabilitated slain, glad to be the man's child. The world is different since he's seen it last. Out of jail, been seven years, and he's happy that he's free at last. He All really he told vivid stories from a viewpoint that uh, black men and people in hip hop were, were just not used to hearing. He, he really delved into a darkness that many of us were afraid to speak about. And the life you used to live reflecting your mother's face, and I still got to wonder why. I ain't never seen a man cry till I see that man die. Ah. Yeah, if there was ever any doubt um, about Scarface's place in history, this this tiny desk cemented hey. all of it. If I could, I just looking back on on this year at the tiny desk, in my opinion, this was the the best year that we've ever had. There were so many shows that connected to our audience in a special way this year. Like I can go on and on and on, and it's just that little corner is where is where greatness and magic happens. That was NPR Music's Bobby Carter, Anna Maria Sayer, and Stephen Thompson. You're listening to All Things Considered. A bipartisan group of lawmakers wants to end legacy preferences in college admissions. At highly selective colleges, students who have a direct family tie to the school can be as much as three times more likely to be admitted than equally qualified students who don't. The college admissions process is under new scrutiny after the Supreme Court ended race-based affirmative action in June. Here's NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Joe Massawa is a junior at Georgetown School of Foreign Service here in Washington, D.C., and to hear him tell it, he's living the dream. My grandparents lived here in D.C. I've been on campus. I have photos of me from when I was, was younger there. Um, so I always had Georgetown like in my mind as being, you know, the one school that I really, really wanted to get into. Growing up, he bonded with his dad, who he says is also a Georgetown graduate, over university basketball games. And Massawa says he worked his tail off to make sure he had the best odds possible to secure his spot. He even hopes his future kids will one day choose to attend Georgetown, too. But he told me he hopes the legacy admissions preference that may have helped him get in is eventually reformed. On the application, there's a little box that you can check that shows you, you know, whether or not you had a, a relative who was legacy. So I checked that box um, and I submitted my application and I heard back and I got in. And you don't think much about it, but now that there's been, you know, this whole movement on campus, it made me rethink my college application process and wonder that for all the work that I did to get into Georgetown, was it just the tiny little box that I checked? He signed a petition this fall, along with hundreds of other students, staff, and alumni, calling on Georgetown to end preferential treatment of legacy applicants. And the petitioners have some powerful allies in that fight. 
a bipartisan pair of U.S. senators who have proposed legislation that would amend the Higher Education Act of 1965 to link a school's accreditation to ending the practice. Republican Todd Young of Indiana joined with Democrat Tim Kaine of Virginia to introduce the Merit Act. Here's Kaine. I think families of kids don't like the notion that they start off already behind because maybe they didn't go to the school or somebody else has more money than them. The lawmakers say legacy preference runs counter to the idea of the American dream. Richard Reeves, a scholar who studied this during his time with the nonpartisan Brookings Institution, agrees. The American ideal that I hope my kids would benefit from when I moved here, it's anti-hereditary at its core. The idea of taking your place, making your place, making your way in the world. Reeves said that while most Americans don't have a four-year degree, and far fewer attend the kind of highly selective institutions where legacy preference can offer the biggest boost, these highly selective institutions can still really shape how the country operates, given the number of people they send into government, media, and the executive ranks. Is this idea of meritocracy should be driving college admissions, or is the role of these institutions to help kind of pass the baton on from one generation to the next? Georgetown University didn't respond to multiple requests for comment from NPR, but alongside hundreds of other institutions, the school is facing pressure from a growing chorus of lawmakers, of all stripes, who say it's time for reform. Folks like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressive New Yorker, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, a social conservative who spoke out against the practice during his presidential run. Masawa, the Georgetown legacy student, told me that this issue can be really hard to talk about for folks, but that he's grateful that people are talking about it. The admissions process is flawed and it's skewed, and I hope for the process to be reformed, and I think that this is one step that it could be reformed to be fairer for all college applicants. And while it's not likely this reform bill will make it through a mostly stalled Congress to Biden's desk for a signature, it's clear that the issue has momentum. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR or online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the threats to free and fair elections in 2024, not just in the U.S., but around the world. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, supporting your health this sniffle season with specialists who can suggest their favorite remedies in Porter Square, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. Remember, parents, join us Monday, January 8th at WBUR City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Forecast has rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-40s. Clouds and rain tomorrow. Highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 50 degrees in Boston at 549. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. We asked our readers to tell us about the most memorable gifts they'd ever received. People told us all sorts of things. A positive pregnancy test, barbecue potato chips, an inflatable boat. I wrote about the bamboo fruit bowl my husband bought me about 20 years ago. We still have it. Gifts can be expensive or dirt cheap. They can be objects or experiences. The best gifts are totally subjective, but often they delight or startle or make you feel truly known. 
During this holiday season, I hope you'll consider a gift to WBUR. Help us go beyond the news of the day to bring you stories that illuminate ideas and foster understanding. Give now at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. 2024 will be a record year for voting. Billions of people all around the world are expected to head to the polls. Among others, India, Mexico, Taiwan, South Africa, the European Parliament, and of course, the U.S. will hold major elections. As NPR's Shannon Bond reports, these elections are a ripe target for bad actors bent on disrupting democracy. Last summer and fall, thousands of Facebook accounts claiming to be Americans started weighing in on U.S. politics and foreign affairs. But their posts were weird, says Ben Nimmo, who leads global threat intelligence at Facebook's parent company, Meta. They had very peculiar markers, like some of them were marked as retweets. Retweeting is not a thing that happens on Facebook, but it happens on Twitter. And what these accounts had been doing uh, was copy-pasting the content of tweets by real Americans, and then posting them onto Facebook. The accounts were pretty obviously fake. They were being operated from China, not the U.S. And another thing stood out. They didn't take sides. They copied posts from both Republican and Democratic politicians. Nimmo says the goal may have been to build an audience here in America. So it might just be a preparatory stage. It might also be that they are trying to push on really emotive issues to to drive the two sides further apart. This Chinese operation wasn't successful. Facebook took down almost 5,000 fake accounts and said their posts had not reached real people. But Nimmo says it's a preview of what to expect in 2024. State actors, including China, Russia, and Iran, are expected to target voters in many countries to promote their own interests and exacerbate divisions. It shows that foreign threat actors are trying to hijack authentic partisan narratives in the countries they're targeting. Those aren't the only threats that have tech companies, civil society groups, and government officials on edge. Far-right movements are on the rise in Europe, Latin America, and the U.S. The wars in Ukraine and Gaza are fueling geopolitical tensions. And the social media platforms themselves have backed off some of their efforts to police false and misleading claims. Layoffs have also left their trust and safety teams diminished. It really feels like the perfect storm. Nora Benavidez is senior counsel at the media advocacy group Free Press. We're going to have 40-ish determinative national elections next year. Over 2 billion people globally will be voting or at least have the option to vote. And social media is still such a pervasive and common way that people get information. Over the years, companies like Meta have become more aggressive at cracking down on foreign threats, focusing on how they exploit their platforms, such as by breaking rules against impersonation. But as that Chinese operation shows, foreign actors often seize on domestic narratives. And political figures and their supporters in the countries they target may knowingly or unknowingly pick up false claims pushed by outside forces. Katie Harbath spent a decade working on public policy and elections at Facebook. It's not like you have foreign interference over here and domestic stuff here. They are intertwined. Researchers tracking election discussions online say narratives and tactics are increasingly crossing borders. Felix Carta is European Union director at Reset, a London-based nonprofit. Same types of content, same types of narratives, uh, similar tools being used by actors ranging from 
Russian state-sponsored accounts on social media to uh, extremists in countries like Germany, France, Spain, and of course, U.S. alt-right actors as well. That includes misleading claims about election fraud, echoing former President Donald Trump's big lie that the 2020 U.S. election was stolen. Ahead of Brazil's 2022 presidential contest, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro spent months sowing distrust in the results. After he lost, his supporters stormed Brazil's capital. Recently, as Argentina and Spain held national elections, some candidates and their supporters also made baseless claims of fraud. Harbath says that's her biggest worry for 2024. If there's one thing that people need to have trust in, it's that process and that they think that it's free and fair. If we lose that, she says, democracy is in trouble. Shannon Bond, NPR News. Shoppers aren't holding back this holiday season. Although retail spending is not as rip-roaring as it was last year, the numbers are still up. And that's just the most recent good sign for the broader economy. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. During the pandemic, shoppers flush with cash from stimulus checks spent more than ever, spending big on outdoor equipment and furniture for home offices, all while inflation drove prices higher and higher. So year to year, holiday spending grew by 8 or even 12%. This year, it's back to a very normal 3.1%, according to data released Tuesday by MasterCard. And that means it was a good year for shoppers and retailers alike, says Bert Flickinger. Consumers uh, spent and they spent on practical items, gift cards, uh, food, uh, clothing and shoes, and less on electronics this year. Flickinger is managing director at the Strategic Resource Group, a business consulting firm. Consumers didn't go wild spending on expensive things like fancy furniture or jewelry or electronics, he says. Instead, people focused their spending on smaller scale stuff like new clothes and eating out. Sales at restaurants this holiday season were up by nearly 8% over last year. People had really been well supplied and uh, not buying big ticket items, uh, but consumables, whether it's uh, edibles or wearables, uh, really, really led. So it's a practical Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's season. That shoppers have money to spend during the holidays is evidence that the economy is working right now, said Jack Kleinhens, chief economist at the National Retail Federation. Consumers are spending a decent clip and they've been remarkably resilient this year and surprisingly so because of the resilience that we've seen in the labor market. Unemployment has stayed low and employers keep hiring. Meanwhile, inflation is slowing down. Prices are only up 2.6% over this time last year, which isn't too far from the Fed's target rate of 2%. That said, there are some yellow flags in this economy. There's the record amount of credit card debt, more than $1 trillion. And millions of people have recently had to start making federal student loan payments again after a long pause during the pandemic. Still, Kleinhens says he's optimistic. For retailers, 2023 isn't done just yet. The week after Christmas is one of the busiest weeks of the year. People are have their gift cards. They're making exchanges. Um, they're looking for sales. And of course, there's returns that go along with it. All signs point to a solid finish for the year, he says. Becky Sullivan, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WBUR. Thanks for joining us this Wednesday evening. Coming up just after six, workers at the Eiffel Tower go on strike on what was supposed to be a day of commemoration to its creator. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight with rain and even a thunderstorm possible. Temperatures dropping to the mid-40s right now, 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, committed to developing deep relationships and building bridges among people and communities to advance social, economic, and racial justice throughout Massachusetts. The LennyZakemFund.org. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. and Israel hold top-level talks at the White House as Israel signals an expansion of its ground offensive into Gaza. It's Wednesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, what the meetings between Israel's Strategic Affairs Minister and the U.S. Secretary of State mean for U.S.-Israeli relations. Also this hour, what it is like for Syrian migrants trying to reach Europe by sea. There was shooting on us, around us, around the boat, hitting the boat for two times. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, with home prices at a record high and signs that rental inflation could soon moderate, could renting be the better option in the near future? It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Top Biden administration officials met with the president of Mexico today. NPR's Jasmine Guards reports the delegation discussed potential solutions to help stem the surge of migrants arriving at the southern border. Earlier today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorgas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall held closed-door talks with Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. The topic was the U.S.-Mexico border, where over 2.5 million immigrants were encountered in the last year. President López Obrador has signaled he is willing to work with the U.S. towards curbing immigration, but he also reiterated his belief that deterrence alone will not work and that the root causes, like poverty, need to be addressed. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, Mexico City. 
The Michigan Supreme Court has decided not to review whether former President Donald Trump can appear on the state's primary ballot. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluter reports the decision is a setback for those who say Trump is not eligible to serve. The Michigan Supreme Court left standing lower court decisions, saying there's nothing to decide unless Trump is actually chosen to be the Republican nominee. Only then would the court consider whether he is ineligible to run under the Constitution's insurrection clause. Mark Brewer is an attorney with a group trying to keep Trump off the ballot. He says right now there's a patchwork of decisions around the country, and this needs to be resolved before the November election. That ultimately we need a uniform decision from the United States Supreme Court that applies in every state. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled last week that Trump cannot appear on the state's ballot. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta. Ukraine is denying losing control of the town of Marinka that Russia has claimed. NPR's Hanna Palomarenko reports the Ukrainian military says its troops are still within the town's administrative borders. Commander-in-Chief Valery Zaluzhny said that Ukrainian troops had withdrawn to the outskirts of Marinka and prepared a defensive line near it. He also emphasized that Ukrainian territory is important, but the lives of the personnel are a priority. If enemy shells start grinding this tiny place together with stones, with the ground and with our soldiers, then the lives of our soldiers are more important to us, he says. Analysts from the Institute for the Study of War know that if Marinka falls, it will represent a limited tactical gain and will not pretend any operationally significant advance for Russians. Hanna Palomarenko, NPR News, Kyiv. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 111 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Boston police are investigating the shooting of a teenager in Dorchester. Investigators say it happened on Bellevue Street around 3 o'clock this afternoon. According to police, the young man was taken to a nearby hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. At last check, there have been no arrests in the case. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office is suing a crypto firm for allegedly scamming Russian-speaking seniors. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports. The lawsuit says Spirebit betrayed itself as an investment firm that helped customers trade stocks, cryptocurrency, and foreign currency. In reality, the suit says the company was a fake and elderly victims lost thousands of dollars. Earlier this year, NPR profiled a person who lost his life savings, $340,000, after giving Spirebit his money. The Mass Attorney General's office says the company used manipulative ads on social media to lure investors. It hopes the lawsuit will put an end to any fraud. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. A Winthrop police lieutenant is facing charges of child rape. 56-year-old James Feely was arrested last night. He pleaded not guilty at his arraignment today and was ordered held on $200,000 bail. Prosecutors say the crimes took place over the past year on a victim under the age of 14. Feely's due back in court next month. He's been placed on leave from the Winthrop Police Department. Kids and teens are spending more and more time on social media, and a new study estimates just how much profit these young users generate for online platforms. WBUR's Emily Piper Valillo has more. The study from Harvard estimates users under 18 generated nearly $11 billion of ad revenue for six major social media platforms in 2022. 
Amanda Rafool is one of the study's authors. When companies are generating this much profit from young users, we can't always trust that they're going to self-regulate. And if youth mental health and profit are at odds with one another, I think that they're always going to choose what's going to maximize the amount of money they make. Rafool says she hopes lawmakers will consider adding more regulations for social media companies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. The long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic led several Boston theaters to close their doors in 2023. But WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports on one holiday tradition that has still managed to keep its lights on now for 53 years. The Revels in Cambridge has delighted families with music and spectacle for generations. The 2023 iteration feels the closest to pre-pandemic levels of attendance, says artistic director Patrick Swanson. We've survived those stormy seas of the last three years, hanging on by our fingernails, and I think we're headed into the right direction. Swanson notes an increased interest in matinees over evening shows. He says those trends will help inform programming decisions for next year's production. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The state transportation department's taking steps to ensure smooth travel this holiday weekend. Construction on state highways will be paused from Friday morning through Tuesday morning. Also, the Sumner Tunnel connecting East Boston to downtown will remain open all weekend. Sports Bruins are at the Buffalo Sabres tonight. Celtics are off their back tomorrow. Forecast says rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-40s. More clouds and rain tomorrow. Could see a thunderstorm in the first half of the day. Highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The United Nations says more than 2,500 people died in the Mediterranean Sea this year while trying to reach Europe. Those that survive the journey on smugglers' boats mostly arrive on Italy's shores, where a fierce political debate over migration makes their future far from easy or certain. NPR's Ruth Sherlock joined a rescue ship run by the charity Doctors Without Borders. It's 2 a.m. and the team on the rescue ship, the MV Geobarance, has just spotted a small boat in distress. The migrants on board have used the light of their phones to attract attention. Rescuers from Doctors Without Borders or MSF move in to help. It's pitch dark. We're in the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles off the coast of Libya, and the small fishing boat is so packed with people that if anyone panics or moves too quickly, it could capsize. Somebody warns, there's a baby amid the crush. MSF do manage to get everybody safely on board the Geobarrens. And then, hours later, there's a second boat. By morning, the team has saved 258 people, among them are families and even children making the journey to Europe alone. Now I'm 16. When I was in Libya, I was 15. As this boy is still young, we'll protect his identity. He's a whip-smart kid who's taught himself near-perfect English by watching American movies. 
He grew up in the civil war in Syria and is the oldest of three siblings, he says. He always felt responsible for his family. Their life was not, uh, not safe, so that's why I, I left Syria, to help my family and to bring them to Europe. At 13, he started saving money. Then last year, at 15, he went to Damascus airport and boarded a plane alone to Libya, another country at war. There, he paid a smuggler to cross the Mediterranean. But the boat was caught by the Libyan Coast Guard, which is supported by the European Union to stop this migration. The Coast Guard are notoriously violent. There was shooting on us, around us, around the boat, hitting the boat for two times. They were trying to follow us on the sea. He and the others on board were taken back to Libya, to a detention center. The police there was hitting me. Give me your dollars. I don't have a dollar, sir. Hitting me, give me your dollars. He thought if he hitting me a lot, I will like make a dollar from nothing. I don't know. He says he was barely given any food and the drinking water was salty. And when he fell ill, there was no doctor. No one was kind. No one. No one was kind. After you got out that first time, you could have gone home. Actually, yeah. I could. I thought about uh, going back to Syria. But, but if I get back to Syria, I will lose my future and my, and my family's future. He says in the year he spent in Libya, he was thrown into detention four times and made five attempts to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Rescued with him from the smuggler's boat are two women I also meet on the MV Geobarents, Aya and Reem al-Sakr, cousins from Syria who've shown this same determination to reach Europe. They're making this journey with Aya's four children, aged between six and just ten months old. Reem al-Sakr says they decided to leave Syria after both their husbands were killed in the war. Aya was pregnant with her youngest at the time. They sold their homes and jewellery and flew to Libya with the children. They spent six months in a rented apartment searching for a smuggler to get them to Europe. At one point, Aya says, she and the children and Reem were kidnapped for ransom by a minibus driver, along with other Syrians. They demanded money from us, or said they'd kill us. They beat the men and said awful things to the women and scared the children with weapons. When the kidnappers told Reem to call a relative who could pay a ransom, she took a huge risk, calling the Libyan police instead. And in this case, the authorities intervened. I meet them on their second attempt to cross to Europe. On the boat, there was dizziness and vomiting and fatigue. The children were sick too. It was hot in the day and cold at night. And then the engine cut. Drifting in the darkness, without a satellite phone to call for help, they and the 16-year-old Syrian boy could have joined the more than 2,500 migrants who've died in the Mediterranean this year. We were thinking if we're, if we're yelling or screaming, who will hear, hear us? But on this night, they were spotted by the MSF team on the MV Geobarents. It was my, yeah, the best time in my life. I started crying because I made it, you know. Uh, like, four hours before, we were thinking about dying. 
The night before we dock in Italy, the Alsakar cousins play music on a small speaker that's shaped like a disco ball and flashes lights. It's the one possession they've made sure to keep during their long journey as a distraction for the children. It becomes a party with dancing and singing. A moment of light relief after so much trauma. And the next day, at the Italian port of Salerno, I say goodbye to Reem and Aya Al-Sakr and her children. She's so, so, so happy to be here, Aya says. They're met by the Italian authorities and the Italian Red Cross and taken to a processing centre. The rescued migrants hope this is the start of a new life. But the next day, by the train station, I see many of the migrants again and they look lost and in shock. I'm at the station in Salerno and in the small square in front of the station there was about 80 to 100 of the guys who were on the MSF ship and they've spent the night here and they've all received expulsion orders from Italy. Don Antonio is a priest with the Catholic charity Caritas. He says many told him they simply didn't understand what was happening and that after being handed these expulsion papers, the migrants were left outside the gate of the local government building, miles out of town. Many didn't have money or even a phone. The Caritas volunteers bring the migrants to speak with a lawyer. The expulsion documents claim the migrants opted not to request asylum in Italy. But many here tell the lawyer that there was no proper translation, so they didn't know what they were signing. And now, after all they've been through, they risk being deported back to their home country or detained in Italy. As for Reem and Aya al-Sakr and the children and the 16-year-old Syrian boy who travelled alone to Europe, they've slipped away on trains bound northward. I couldn't reach the whip-smart boy with fluent English. His plan was to join relatives in Ireland. But I did track down Aya al-Sakr. She tells me she and the children have made it to Germany. Her parents live there, and this is the first time they've met their four grandchildren. She says there were tears of joy. She's claimed asylum there, and she and the children are now living in a government centre while their papers are processed. She doesn't know how long this will take, maybe over a year. It can be hard living in the centre, she says, but at least she's brought her children to safety. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. Ari, how much do you know about French history? Well, you know, I spend most of my time thinking about the Roman Empire, but I do know a bit about the French. (laughs) Well, then you must know what today is. Obviously, you're referring to the 100th anniversary of the death of Gustave Eiffel, the creator and namesake of the Eiffel Tower, or 
Eiffel Tower. And in his honor, organizers had planned a day of events and celebration to be held at the monument, but... But the Eiffel Tower, which is typically open 365 days a year and draws around 6 million visitors annually, was closed today as union workers at the tower went on strike ahead of contract negotiations with the city, citing complaints about poor management. So instead of climbing to the top of the tower for that perfect selfie, Tourists had to pack up and escargot home? That's right. They had to baguette lost until, well, whenever the strike is over. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, why it can be so hard to find treatment for gambling addiction. On Wall Street today, there was little change for the markets. Dow was up 111 points, about a third of 1%, to 37,656. Nasdaq rose 24 points, and the S&P 500 gained 6. In local business news, Boston-area biotech saw even more layoffs in the fourth quarter after a year of heavy losses. Data compiled by the Boston Business Journal show more than 470 Boston-area employees lost their jobs from October to December. That brings the total for the year to about 3,800, sharply higher than last year. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. Sunday, December 31st is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight, rain and even a thunderstorm possible with patchy fog around the area. Temperatures not dropping much, down to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, clouds and rain pretty much all day. Could see a thunderstorm as well with highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It has never been easier to gamble in the U.S. Almost every state allows some sort of wagering, and sports or online betting is legal in most of the country. An estimated 2% of the population has a gambling disorder. Only a very few get treatment. And that's why advocates are pushing for better access to help and a more unified national effort. New England Public Media's Karen Brown reports. At the MGM Casino in Springfield, Massachusetts, 
a 60-year-old regular named Monroe is sitting in an electronic craps machine. Let's see if I can win this one. All behind the nine, seven, I win. Nine, I lose. <laughs> he chooses machines that allow small bets for one or five dollars at a time. And now I'm gonna take my money out and just walk around with my $12 and be happy. It didn't used to be that way. Monroe asked to keep his last name private because he has a history of gambling addiction. For years, he would come to the casino in the morning and stay, he doesn't even know how long. It's like, do you want to go outside and see the sun? No, I'm down, I gotta get my money back. You get your money back, it's like, I, I gotta get more. And that's how you know when you, you got a problem, when you ain't got nothing time for nothing else. Monroe now gambles on a budget, $50 a day, but that didn't come easily. For a time, he would keep his money in his socks to make it harder to overspend. It never occurred to him to get formal treatment, and he didn't know where to get it anyway. That's pretty common, says Keith White of the National Council on Problem Gambling. You know, right now, we're still kind of sitting back and, and making problem gamblers work hard to find the help that is available. That doesn't work well for any other addiction. Between casinos, the lottery, and now sports and mobile betting, no one in America is far from some form of legal gambling. As a result, researchers estimate around 7 million people have a gambling disorder, the kind that ruins finances, relationships, and jobs. Yet fewer than 1% of them are in treatment. Problem gambling is not like other things where if you build it, they will come. White says gamblers are notoriously reluctant to seek help. So relatively few providers offer it, which in turn makes it hard to find. And there's no national office for gambling addiction, as there is for drugs and alcohol, even though it's been listed in the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry for more than 40 years. It's actually quite a horrifyingly potent disease state in the sense that it's more associated with suicide than any of the other addictions. Dr. Emily Brunner is a gambling specialist on the board of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Most of her gambling patients started out seeking help for drug or alcohol addiction. She then treats them with a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and medications that reduce cravings. But no medication is FDA approved for gambling. And without a national research arm, she says the body of knowledge is thin. I do think addiction doctors are very interested in addressing it better and learning more about it. But, you know, there aren't very many of us and we have a lot of competing priorities. And while gambling can trigger a neurobiological dependence like substance use, Keith White says it's often considered an issue of morality or even skill among doctors as well as gamblers themselves. They think maybe I am a bad gambler. I didn't concentrate hard enough on the cards. That's the rabbit hole Ted Hartwell went down for decades. When he was a kid in Lubbock, Texas, coping with his parents' difficult divorce, he spent weekends with his father at the racetrack. My dad would give each of the kids $20, and that was ours to wager on the horses. Over time, he moved to Las Vegas and got heavily into slot machines and poker. He took out payday loans and opened secret credit cards. It seemed like the only way I was going to get out of the mess was to gamble higher limits and hit that major jackpot so I could pay off all this hidden debt before anybody found out about it. He says he still didn't think he had a problem until his wife figured out he'd lost a quarter of a million dollars over 10 years. I thought I was on the verge of losing my family, losing access to my little girl who was two years old at that time. For the very first time, I recognized that this was something I needed help for. But he still didn't know how to get it. 
first stop was a 12-step program that didn't help. He went to a general therapist who had no training in gambling addiction. He picked up a brochure with the 800 Gambler hotline number. And either hung up or pretended I had the wrong number a couple times. Finally, he found an intensive outpatient program specifically for gambling addiction and hasn't gambled in 15 years. Now he works for the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling, where he advocates for better access to treatment. He says there are only about 30 gambling-certified counselors in all of Nevada. The state spends a total of $2 million to address problem gambling, which is a tiny fraction of what the gambling industry brings in. Some states have no state funding for the issue at all. But funding alone doesn't always solve the problem. Take Massachusetts, which earmarks $24 million a year for problem gambling. Yet only 150 therapists in the state are gambling certified, and many don't actually offer treatment. Some clinics even ended their gambling programs. They say clients weren't asking for it. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Bet just $5 to get 200 in bonus bets. And now a younger generation is being drawn into sports betting. With live betting on every NFL game. Phil Sherwood is with the nonprofit Massachusetts Council on Gaming and Health. These are folks who have never played on a slot machine, never scratched a scratch ticket. They placed their first bet when sports betting became legal, and then six weeks later, they're in trouble. Given that sports betting companies are all over the internet and airwaves, even partnering with colleges, Sherwood says there should be as much effort to recruit new therapists and promote gambling helplines. Whether it be in barbershops in urban areas, but on billboards in high traffic areas. And many experts recommend more screening at drug recovery programs or credit agencies to find people at risk of gambling problems. Oh, oh, come on, come on, let's see, see this, see this. If I get this. Even if, like Monroe and Springfield, players don't always recognize the signs. Only time we're in trouble is we ain't got no money. That's how they feel. Monroe says he can live with his current habit, around $300 a week, but he never wants to go back to the darkest days of his addiction. And believe me, I, I got some horror stories to tell, but I go keep to the grave, because it was that bad. Advocates are now pushing for legislation that would create a national funding stream to study problem gambling. Meanwhile, they want states to better regulate new forms of gambling to prevent addiction in the first place. Public health workers call that putting up fences at the top of the hill rather than ambulances at the bottom. For NPR News, I'm Karen Brown. Chinese automakers are flooding the European market with electric cars, and European drivers are rushing to buy them over better-known brands. Move over Tesla, make room for BYD? We are BYD. You've probably never heard of us. But hey, we know you just want to drive a great electric car. On the next All Things Considered, we'll take a look under the hood of the Chinese EV business. Listen on the radio, online, or on your smart speaker. Just ask for NPR or your local member station by name.
This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Coming up next, it's Marketplace. Forecast says rain and possible thunderstorms tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-40s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. The time is 629. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.